A couple times a month, I get emails from listeners in prohibition states. They always express frustration in learning of all the cannabis opportunities in other states while their own state continues to live in the 1980s. My heart always goes out to these folks. I'm talking about you, friends in Idaho, Utah, South Dakota, Nebraska, Alabama, and Indiana, where I went to college and slanged. I also feel for y'all who live in states pretending to modernize and yet having CBD-only cannabis laws, THC maximums, or simply broken systems that don't feel like they will ever be repaired. Hell, that even includes my own state of Washington, where we don't even have pesticide testing on licensed products or home grow yet somehow. U.S. cannabis legalization is a wreck. It is mostly being run by politicians who don't know cannabis or cannabis medicine and are more focused on making donors happy than providing informed leadership. Between intransigent boomer politicians and aggressive business-focused lobbyists, American cannabis is proudly evolving the worst of all possible situations. Now, this all sucks. But understanding the dynamics of what is going on is a major key to us getting it all sorted out. While it is most common for we cannabis folks to have a toke and mind our own business, there are a handful of cannabis policy researchers out there who are keeping score, looking at history to see what has worked and failed in the past, and are coming up with novel ideas that help us understand what the hell is going on and why. These are the individuals who are needed to lead us back to sanity. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. This month, we are giving away the entire Vashon Kush series from Farmer Fly Selections. Ten lucky winners will receive one randomized pack of these ten new Vashon Kush crosses. To learn more about what the crosses are in the drop, check out at Farmer underscore Fly on Instagram. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire and I'm your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Dr. Dominic Corva, PhD. Dominic Corva is founder and executive director of the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy based in Seattle, Washington. He is a sought-after speaker on cannabis policy and travels the world to consult for government and academic bodies on effective cannabis policy. He is also co-director of the Humboldt Institute of Interdisciplinary Marijuana Research at Humboldt State University, affiliate professor of sociology at Humboldt State University, and the cannabis policy specialist for the California Center for Rural Policy. He received his PhD in geography from the University of Washington. Dominic is also one of my most valued friends. I met Dominic as I was making my transition from the black market to community organizing medical cannabis cultivators back in 2013. His mentorship, connections, and support have been invaluable to my career. The forming of the Vimeo organization here on Vashon Island and my eventual creation of Shaping Fire. It is likely true that Shaping Fire would not exist today if Dominic had not encouraged me to pursue helping cannabis patients and organized cannabis education events all those years ago. Finally, Dominic Corva holds a special place in the scene here in Washington State. As is true in most states, the cannabis scene here is pretty small, and we know each other, and many of us came from the underground. Dominic is someone everyone embraces because he gets it. 
His depth on cannabis policy is immense. Dominic understands the historical basis for everything we see happening nationally today, and he waves aside the bro science that constitutes policy discussion in most circles. Dominic is a cannabis policy oracle, and he is a big-hearted, lovable academic who is embraced by everyone I know. Today, we are going to discuss the impact of state licensing on long-term cannabis farmers in California, the awkwardness of prohibition and licensed sales existing at the same time, cannabis prohibition as a public health issue, the profitable injustice of nonviolent cannabis prisoners, the latest on electrical usage by industrial agricultural cannabis farms, and the rise of the citizen scientist. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Dominic. Thank you, Shango. It's a pleasure to be here. I think this is my third time, and it's it's always great to be on your show. Absolutely, and actually, you were the when when I moved from the Gondrepreneur dot com podcast over here to Shaping Fire on my own. You were my very first guest of the new show. So th- thanks, right. thanks That's for right. being back, and also congratulations on your new collection of heavy duty academic research entitled "The Routledge Handbook of Post Prohibition Cannabis Research." Wow, um, what a coll- amazing collection! collection of of research here and you and your writing partner joshua mizell edited quite a powerful tome interpreting the the present with a firm understanding of the past and how we got here the the 30 chapters provide a substantial look into the most well-researched perspectives into these you know rather complex cannabis topics there's a lot written about cannabis nowadays. It's, you know, such a popular topic in mainstream media, but we know they get a lot wrong all the time and it frustrates us when we read this stuff, right? Also, there are small cannabis media companies inside of cannabis that aren't really mainstream who are just slightly better, but they still get details and perspectives wrong all the time. And then there is simply people with no background fighting on the internet. The variety of research in this new book is a different variety of any of those three. Um, it's vigorously researched, and these are top-shelf academics looking at these cannabis topics. And I want people to understand why, why this is a different approach than most of the stuff that they read out there. So will you start us out by explaining how a collection of academic papers like this is unlike the other examples I gave? Yeah, sure, Shango. So there's really two things that I define as you know part of post-prohibition cannabis research as opposed to just cannabis research. Um, post-prohibition first, let's remember, is, is a term that I use to refer to cannabis with, not after prohibition, cannabis legalization with, not after prohibition. And the the concern as a social scientist and as a geographer was to collect, uh, you know, to collect across five meta-categories examples of research that did two things. One of two things, and sometimes both of two things. One of those I think people are more familiar with, which is, you know, now that cannabis is legal, we can actually research, you know, positive things about it. Uh, And the defining prohibition research agenda was that really you could only research things or get funding for research uh, to look at how, you know, cannabis was bad, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so that's that's the f- kind of the first level, and, and that's that's a real accessible one. I think you know, A.D. Wilson Poe's opioid substitution chapter is a, is a really good example of that. But the other the other part of it is that you know, 
obviously we still had prohibition with us. We talk about cannabis legalization often in a vacuum, as though it's just operating and creating these just sort of legal uh, landscapes, when in fact those landscapes are totally entangled with landscapes of prohibition. And, you know, I'll, I'll just give you a couple of examples. The, the, the most obvious one, I think readers will get this right away, is federal prohibition is still here. And that means a lot of things about what kind of, you know, legal landscapes we can construct. They're, they're not, they're not, for example, uh, you know, cannabis can't be agriculture in California. It's an agricultural product. And that means a million different things for land use. Uh, it means a million different things for other kinds of regulations, and it means a lot for about local control, right? Uh, local control being, you know, sub-state jurisdictions get to really do whatever they want. Uh, and, and that would be another aspect of, you know, prohibition that continues, actually. Because, as we we experienced in Washington and Colorado a little bit, but uh, certainly in California, it's real obvious that, uh, you know, about two-thirds of the jurisdictions in California, and that is 56 counties and something like 450 cities, don't allow, uh, you know, cannabis businesses to operate, which means we have a landscape that is a patchwork quilt, right, of, of prohibitions and, uh, and uh, legal businesses that are operating. Uh, and even in the jurisdictions where legal jurisdictions are operating, um, legal businesses are operating, we continue to, of course, have prohibition on some things. So Washington State, most famously, obviously, does not allow home grow. It is illegal. It is prohibited. So in Washington State, therefore, you know, legalization with prohibition means, yeah, we've got legal cannabis, but you can't grow it at home without uh, a license. And you can't get a license to grow it at home. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so really, the broad concept of you know how legalization is entangled with prohibition, it's really important to kind of start with that uh, for a lot of research because then the research agenda is how do we disentangle prohibition from legalization? It's not just how do we get legalization. It's that even though we're getting legalization. We also still need to work to disentangle prohibition from it and get rid of it. And so some of our authors are, are really sharp about this and, and focused on it. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, Sunil's chapter in public health is a, a very interesting example of a, a challenge to public health as an institution, as an you know, academic meta-institution, where there's still still have uh, a lot of those prohibition assumptions that are attached to what they do. Uh, and Sunil talks about really like they don't recognize the right to spiritual health as part of what's on their agenda. So they, they can't support research that is, is it about that kind of positive. The last thing I want to say is that uh, there's kind of a third degree as well. Uh, and it's a contextual one, which is to say that legalization's politics are connected with and entangled with other kinds of politics. Uh, and by that I mean legalization may, in especially you know urban areas, be entangled with what might be described as you know especially public safety oriented kind of liberal uh, politics that gets in the way of the implementation of legalization. You can think about what about the kids as kind of that research question that like 
is kind of a liberal prohibition question because it doesn't ask whose kids, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and then also, you know, it, it, there's a, a very interesting entanglement with maybe what are usually thought about as libertarian and right-wing thoughts about the free market, right? Um, and whether we should be, you know, uh, deregulating especially small businesses, let's say, um, which is not traditionally something that is on a left or liberal agenda. So, all of these things have an effect on what kind of legalization we get and where. Uh, and it's important to think about those entanglements. So, we, we're promoting research agendas that almost nobody else really are thinking about. The entanglements with prohibition, the entanglements with other kinds of politics. Um, and we do this, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty big, broad set of observations, by organizing it in five meta-issues, right? Uh, so governance, public health, ecology and the environment, markets and society, and culture and social change. And these are kind of interdisciplinary clusters. So when you say academic, academic means a lot of different things. Um, academia is divided into a lot of silos. Uh, that we, 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 we call disciplines, usually. Uh, and so, the disciplines that really haven't gotten as much run, I think, with, with either funding or recognition, are the social science disciplines, which have a long history of critical analyses of prohibition, which is super important, right? So, we, we really got to draw on that, right? Like, if we want a legal landscape that undoes the harms of prohibition then we need to draw on observations, insights, and research about prohibition's harms. And those are found pretty exclusively in the social sciences. Uh, and so we have a really broad array of folks from different disciplines or from interdisciplinary research clusters. Uh, it, it can get a little complicated, but broadly speaking, I think everyone kind of understands, okay, governance is like, you know, the law, democracy, in, you know, institutions, you know, uh, public health includes biomedical research, uh, as well as, uh, you know, citizen science, even, um, uh, um, ecology and the environment isn't just about, you know, the impacts of outdoor cultivation on, you know, water supplies, it's about energy, right, and energy use, um, markets and society include a discussion of, like, What's so difficult? Like, why is it so difficult for people to actually make money as small businesses? It's an important question to ask, um, and so forth. So, uh, culture and social change also deals with you know stigma, ongoing uh, stigma, which I haven't talked about, and is one of those slippery, slippery concepts uh, because you can't quantify stigma. You can quantify maybe the effects of stigma, but you need really qualitative research methods to dig into, you know, how is stigma changing? Where is it at? Um, who, who is continuing to be harmed by stigmas of prohibition, even in legal landscapes? And I would point out that often it's medical patients, uh, as, as uh, Newhart and Dolphin do in their chapter. 
So before we get into some of those uh, parts, you know, specific topics, um, just for folks who are interested in how the uh, compilation came together, you know, with a with an ever increasingly pool of talented academics studying and writing about modern cannabis policy, how did you go about choosing your authors? Um, you know, you've put together, you know. A, a, a literal dream team. It's an incredible cast of folks who are writing. Did you choose the topics first and then find the authors or did you choose an author first and then invite them or a topic or maybe something else entirely? Well, it was an iterative process, Shango. Uh, and so do you want me to walk you through like the whole thing or just, I <laughs> just, well, just, just, you know, give us a, just give us a thumbnail because, um, sure. because, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for like a, um, any, <clears throat> any like agenda that might be like under, uh, underneath the people that you chose yeah. and, and, and then particularly, you know, um, how, how one pulls together such an in- incredible group, but you know, you don't have to go deep into it cause we want to move on to the topic swiftly. <laughs> Right, sure, sure. Well, basically, once we had figured out the structure that we wanted, um, Josh and I both reached out to you know academics in our network. That was that was one of the first things that we did. And of course, we're we're not new to the scene. Uh, you know, we have a history of, of publishing and working with and and uh, following the research of folks. Uh, you know as far away as, you know, Uruguay and Morocco and the UK. Um, And so, really, it came from our networks, is the simplest answer to that. Uh, These were people who, many of them were, you know, uh, friends of ours already, certainly, um, and already kind of tuned into what we wanted to do. Uh, Some were, um, like Craig Reinerman, right, who who starts off the book, was was Josh's uh, dissertation advisor, at at um, UC Santa Cruz, um, and Craig is a luminary. Uh, Wendy Chapkus is someone that I've followed for a really long time, and I've taught her book and, and gotten to know her basically by reaching out to her, for example, and she's another superstar um, in the public health section. And so there weren't a whole lot of strangers, really. Uh, I'd say that there were a number of people we, re- we reached out to, and they d- said no, right? Uh, we, there were a number of people we re- reached out to, and they said, okay, let's try it. And, and when what they wanted to write kind of came back, didn't fit what we wanted to do for the book, we kind of like, we either worked with them to come to an understanding or let them keep going. So some of these were kind of famous people <laughs> uh, and I don't want to bag on them. So, yeah. uh, and then, then there was, uh, you know, some other folks uh, that just kind of, let's say Carl Hart was very busy. Uh, he agreed to write a chapter and then there were just, there was just a lot of, a lot of silence and kind of dropped the ball. It looked like he was relying on his graduate students. And so we just kind of let that go. Yeah. Since his book came out, I can imagine the demands on his time, on his time have skyrocketed. Absolutely. And yeah, I really yeah. like this idea that's coming, you know, clear that, you know, you and Josh Mizell are area experts. You have both been doing this, uh, teaching this at university level for, you know, like decades on your part. I don't know how old Josh is, but, but you guys are very much area, area experts and discipline experts. Experts. And 
the two of you just worked together and curated from all of the people they have access to, and and you chose the best of the best who were you know also interested. So um, so thank you for that. You know your your in your introduction um, co written with Josh, um, you say that this book is intended to encourage critical re- critical research agendas that address the continuity of prohibition in legal cannabis frameworks as they remain entangled with the continuum of global drug production. Right, very similar to what you said during during our introduction today but there's so much to unpack there right what but what piques my interest in that heavy duty sentence is that no one country's relaxation of cannabis laws happens in isolation countries are forever interdependent even if they think they're doing their own thing you and i talked about that during episode one of shaping fire when we talked about policy transfer right yeah and this Mm -hmm. is especially true in regards to the drug trade so let's start out please talk to us a bit about how we are seeing the global global dynamic of cannabis production distribution and prohibition shift around as countries begin to embrace cannabis yeah, so I, I think that sentence actually ended with global drug prohibition, but production is, is, is part of it. So, uh, you know, I think, for example, you can look at, uh, you know, the, the chapter on Morocco by Kenza Sahi, where basically they've been cultivating cannabis for thousands of years, you know, in that area. And the market for it, Certainly has been, you know, they produced hash, for example, for Europeans for a long time. But it's only been in the last, you know, maybe 20 years where basically um, genetics that were bred, you know, generally by Europeans and, 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 and U.S. Americans uh, were taken to the Moroccan fields, right? Which actually starts screwing with their genetics and, and, and at a very basic level, of course. What they had were land races that were adapted to their environment, right? Mm-hmm. And so they were, you know, resistant to whatever they needed to resist there. And now with new, you know, genetics coming in, sometimes bred under conditions of quasi-legality, um, uh, sometimes not, but generally speaking, being brought in because they want to feed the market on the other end with something that, that, that they've they've found uh, that market will prefer whether that's you know Europe or or somewhere else. They bring in the genetics and it, it really screws with uh, the basic agroecology of you know Moroccan cannabis. So that's that's one example. Um, you can also you can also think about the opening up of 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 cannabis trade internationally, which hasn't happened to the degree that I think some people think. Um, as, of course, beginning to affect the livelihoods of folks who've been producing cannabis in, in other areas. Um, you know, right now, legally speaking, obviously, uh, Colombia's done some exporting, right? I think Uruguay has, and I think both of those have been through Tilray. Um, but that's a shift towards kind of the, the, the globalization that we've been familiar with, you know, uh, around other commodities, you know, for 30, 40 years, right? So the supply chains that are uh, rely on cheap labor to produce a, a low-cost product and get it to a market that has money that will pay more money for it. Uh, and so 
that's sort of a, a mundane, you know, problem with globalization is that, you know, labor gets screwed, for example, uh, in, in the first world, um, the, the so-called first world. Uh, but it's also kind of, kind of funny because the drug war did something during the age of globalization, which is, is kind of crazy, which is it was anti-globalization. We got domesticated U.S. markets Right, uh, we we uh, the production that we used to import <laughs> from Mexico, Thailand, Colombia, and elsewhere uh, has been displaced significantly. And you know, starting about twenty years ago, pretty close to half of uh, what what we consume in this country started being pretty much grown here. Um, and so, uh, there, there's a lot of kind of counterintuitive. You know explanations for what are what what's going on, and some of those involve applying critiques of globalization to critiques of globalizing weed, right? Um, and and some of them are well. Then where does like you know global prohibition come into it? <laughs> <laughs> and and then you're then you're off down a rabbit hole. So um, obviously in countries that continue to prohibit cannabis it is much much harder for them to uh, attempt to continue to do so uh there's just a lot of product being being moved uh, around the world and in different ways you have in peru you know uh cannabis being grown and processed into bho for example um which has a higher you know price per uh per weight than than uh cocaine uh, you know, in Lima. Uh, and so you're getting cultivation practices shifting from just coca out in, out in the Amazon area to coca and cannabis and then, uh, you know, processing into the refined uh, product that's smaller and easier to smuggle. Um, and, you know, where does that go? Well, you know, it goes to Lima. <laughs> uh it probably isn't coming to the United States um, because we've had our extraction game, you know, uh, explosion here already, and there's a, a vast oversupply of, of, you know, for example, BHO in Washington. Um, so those are just a few examples of of what I mean by that. I would think that this, the the patchwork that you described that we're all aware of in California really plays out the same if you look at the global yeah. Uh, yeah. presence as well. Yeah. And yeah. it must really cause a whole bunch of odd imbalances and contrasts when you when when you know countries as a pool are both holding on to traditional prohibition that was pushed by the West, plus now everybody wanting to, um, you know, increase health with medical, and then also now this entrepreneurial uh, approach where people are trying to commoditize cannabis, and all three of these are happening at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, like, um, you know, as... You know, these market inefficiencies must just be um, dazzling as a social researcher like yourself. Well, yeah, you know, like, uh, I think you're exactly right. 
The, the patchwork quilt exists at the local level, it exists at the state level, and by local I mean city and county, so there's patchwork quilt upon patchwork quilt upon patchwork quilt upon patchwork quilt, uh, you know, regionally, North America, globally, uh, and so what I'd say that uh, it's almost like a logarithmically more complex, you know, landscape uh, that regulators are faced with, because they're the ones who actually worry about it uh, quite a lot. Um <laughs> Uh, and it's, you know, it provides, I think, as you know, um, opportunities for a, a lot of entrepreneurial uh, activities that are different from and scaled differently uh, than we used to have. Um, I think that uh, uh, when you throw in the medical um, regimes as well, and, and medical, of course, is... Uh, in there, in that gray area uh, of the entanglement between prohibition and legalization, you know, you have the the, the full-throated embrace of, of CBD, for example, like uh, globally, uh, very very quickly, um, and global supply chains for it, and and actually, in countries that are also pretty into prohibition, they're absolutely driving CBD, you know, production and so forth, uh, like China. Um, let's, let's remember that even though the U.S. has, you know, probably originated and pushed this, that there are definitely other significant, you know, geopolitical entities that have that are hanging on to prohibition, uh, and they will probably hang on longer than the U.S. will. I mean, look at Russia. Look at look at the Philippines, uh, yeah. which is uh, an absolute war crime situation going on there. So, um, yeah, it's. Uh, it's pretty crazy. And then that to me says like there is so much opportunity for research and research that actually shows how complex and difficult this is when you're stacking regulations on top of regulations that, you know, may seem to work locally. Usually they don't, but like when you zoom out a little bit, <laughs> then you have your Oklahoma, you know, uh, situation, uh, you know, uh, headed in a different direction than your 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 California and Washington and Oregon situations, uh, so it's it's pretty crazy. And of course, what does that mean? It means that you know Oklahoma is a place where a lot of people went to uh, you know become entrepreneurs. That uh, then they can they're not just selling it locally, right? It's the mm -hmm. same as same as the West Coast, uh, you know, uh, even today. But uh, for Washington, Oregon. Or for Washington, maybe it was you know eight years ago. Oregon still exports, but like Oklahoma has become an export, like a THC exporting state, you know, uh, which is crazy. Uh, so, so your work and and what we've been talking about so far, you've been talking about teasing apart prohibition and legalization because somehow they're both existing at the same time. Yeah. And 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 I'd like to look at an example from Northern California where cannabis cultivators went from working in the medical gray and export markets during prohibition to a new kind of prohibition that's actually being pushed by licensed cannabis companies trying to protect their markets from unlicensed producers to the point that you know folks are uh, you know licensed producers are suing the state for not stomping out 
the their competitors in the unlicensed market. Either way, growing cannabis and minding your own business is still experienced as prohibition, as law enforcement showing up with you know wood chippers and to destroy family crops. Um, is it even fair to call what we are seeing today as legalization, or are we just using that word because it's the closest thing that we've got? Well, I think you have to define the term mm-hmm. and define how you're using it, and we define it very, very clearly in the introduction. Uh, legalization is the uh, the licensing and regulation of a supply chain from cedar clone to consumer, basically, um, and if you have that, you've got a form of legalization. So it's, it's do you have a carved out space, uh, whether or not you still prohibit it, you know, uh, in other ways where cannabis can travel entirely under circumstances that are, that are regulated and supposedly tracked. So, uh, so we, we got this, by the way, from um, Harry Levine in particular, who, who defined it uh, years ago with respect to Amsterdam back in 2004, uh, which Amsterdam, of course, didn't actually have legalization either. Uh, it was the, su- the supply side of it wasn't regulated, and the consumption side of it was. Uh, but Levine had had begun to think about well, what is legalization at that point? And it's it's to me, you know, it is it is the carving out of these supply chains that are governed or or at least supposed to be governed from the beginning to the end use. Uh, and so that can happen. That's actually let, let's let's blow our readers' minds. That's been happening since the 1970s in the United States, right? Uh, with the University of Mississippi and the um, investigative new drug program, right? So mm-hmm. there was a legal supply chain of federally legal cannabis that went from the University of Mississippi to medical patients like Elvi Musica, right? Robert Randall. Um, and it was entirely legal. So we've had legalization in the United States since the 1970s. Let's let's be real clear about that. Um, at the federal level, and, and of course, that's still uh, there's still a couple patients still in that. So once you think about that, then you don't think well, legalization is not actually a brand new thing, right? It's it's existed before, but we didn't recognize it because prohibition was sort of an overwhelming fact. Total fact, total social fact, uh, and so uh, I like to make sure that we're defining legalization. I think that that's an issue in the media and with a lot of other like policy scholars. They just assume legalization is its own thing, uh, and uh, it leads them to I think um, research agendas that are in, that are that often just kind of reproduce common sense uh, to be honest <laughs> instead of instead of actually anything new well with the, with this very specific definition of legalization it actually is a very small niche and the word legalization does not say very much about the overall landscape it really only speaks to yeah. a very small portion yeah. of yeah. the you know cannabis legalization how it's yes. used casually right absolutely uh, and let me let me just mm-hmm. jump in real quick like that's absolutely the case and and one of the one of the ways this happens over and over and over again are those maps of the united states that are color-coded for legal state and you know uh cbd only and and well usually there's there's like legal medical and 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 neither right right and and it looks like okay 
oh, California and all these these states are entirely green. It's just legal. And so, as but actually, if you broke that up by jurisdictions, California would look a lot more like a patchwork quilt. Uh, and so people just kind of assume, oh, there's freedom there. We've got the liberty. We've won. And it, actually, it's just a big mess. Um, so what are your thoughts on the rural militarization of law enforcement in the Emerald Triangle, right? Like, you know, you and I have talked before, both on this show and personally, about just the the general militarization of law enforcement everywhere. But, you know, almost daily we're seeing clips on social media of heavily armed officers and military transports just tearing through the unpaved roads of Humboldt. How can this not be seen as simply an extension of the campaign against marijuana planting camp of the 90s and early 2000s? It's like... It's like, yeah, legalization exists, meaning that there's this there's this path for the for the growing and distribution of taxed licensed cannabis. But at the same time, you know, people who you know, heritage growers who are in California, their situation has not changed all that much. So let me address that because it's it's a, actually a, a really great question for for saying uh, something for for a while here, and if you'll indulge me, please. Um, one of that is that it reminds me of your earlier comment about uh, you know legal businesses you know uh, suing the state for not enforcing um, against uh, unregulated ones, and and let me say there's a geography to that, and it is in particularly in Southern California, uh, and what they usually mean are actually you know storefronts retail storefronts uh and so often really the case is in southern california the places that are relatively high density with legal retail um what they are trying to get people to do is you know enforce against uh you know unlicensed storefronts uh, that that pop up um and you know that is a can of worms itself right because those unlicensed storefronts are generally speaking demographically underrepresented populations in the legal landscape because it's white rich people that have been able to get these other types of licenses now eradication is the is the rural version of urban enforcement let's say that right Mm -hmm. um i think what people don't necessarily understand is that in humboldt and elsewhere over the course of the 1980s and 1990s, local law enforcement backed off from being, you know, I think uh, gung-ho participants in in camp, although they continued to do that. Um, There was an informal regulation pattern going on, which is to say that law enforcement would stay out of certain neighborhoods. Maybe they would have, uh, you know, maybe they they would, you know, um, they would, uh, you know, there was a size and 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 a scope of operations that were more or less just kind of left alone, right? Mm -hmm. Because they weren't hurting anybody. And you're talking about rural law enforcement and rural law enforcement is is not really out there to bug the sparsely populated uh, folks. You don't have neighbors complaining because it was all in remote areas. They get left alone, right? Um, meanwhile, of course, you know, camp would come around by the season, and uh, generally speaking, as time went on with camp, they started focusing more and more on on larger scale operations, 
that sometimes were environmentally destructive. And over time, this this was definitely evident. You know, when when I first got the Humboldt in two thousand nine, over time, a lot of those old timers and small cannabis growers that since ninety six had been you know not that afraid, but especially like after two thousand one, like not too worried about their small gardens, were absolutely up in arms about what they called greed growers and large scale environmentally destructive cultivation. Um. At the same time, whenever policing that was maybe intended for that would catch up a heritage farmer in its net, which you know is, is almost inevitable, really. Um, that you know the collateral damage of uh, you know focusing on larger scale operations, uh, you know that would be pretty awful, and and the old timers would be you know totally against that. But they also were kind of interested in you know like. They didn't want the large-scale, environmentally impactful cultivation in their backyards, and it wasn't just because it was environmentally impactful. It was also driving down the price of their cannabis uh, because they were flooding the market. Right. So, um, so the, the the enforcement situation today is absolutely the continuation of camp, but it's important to remember that, that camp changed over time, uh, and often in directions that I think you know, heritage farmers had no problem with and, in fact, cheered on. And I think some of that is happening today. But really, the smaller farmers are being hit by code enforcement more than by eradication. Like, uh, their, their issues are now with civil code enforcement. That do you mean like do you mean like the, the satellites being used to see greenhouses that are yeah. not yeah. supposed to be growing cannabis and so they just start hitting them with fines before yes. they even bother sending in SWAT teams? That's right. That's okay. right. All right. Yeah. And and that certainly I think is uh, you know The satellites really changed that game. <laughs> the, yeah, the, sure. The satellites did um it's a pretty expensive program. Mendocino's next up for one of those. Um, but, like, there's a 1991 article by Joe Leeper in, like, the Humboldt Geographic with a map that, like, has a pretty damn detailed <laughs> depiction of where and how many canvas plants are in the entire county. And so, like, there's a way in which, actually, like, they've always been seen. Um the question is whether they're left alone or not. Uh, and to what use, like, where does that information go? Well, it used to go to law enforcement, but now it goes also to code enforcement. And code enforcement is, is you know, it is a part of civil government that is, you know, not always, you know, connected to the broader, maybe county vision of trying to protect its citizens. By its nature, code enforcement is out there to weed out the wrong types, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the people you don't want in your neighborhood, the people with their, you know, uh, if they're, you know, maybe there's abandoned cars on their property, you know, maybe their house isn't up to code. Um, you know, code enforcement is really a form of law enforcement against poor people usually uh and so this is kind of different in rural areas than it is in urban areas but it's been real significant across the landscape i mean you have sonoma county let's say right which largely accommodated medical cannabis and commercial medical medical cannabis uh at that 
um, in 2013, you know, doing a joint task force, you know, raid on a uh, uh, mostly Hispanic, uh, you know, neighborhood uh, called Roselands, right? It's 33 houses, um, you know, and, and you look at what they got, and it only ended up with under three pounds a house and under it's about $600. Wow. Both of which were not really, you know, an issue for the white people, right? Um, uh, those, they were being left alone. Uh, you know, you have the city of Clear Lake, which actually, um, at the onset of the financial crisis in 2007, defunded code enforcement entirely because they were broke. And for like six years, you know, they didn't have code enforcement. And Clear Lake is a very, very, very poor town. There's demographically more in common with like a, a, a city in the uh, Appalachians, you know, mm-hmm. to the east. Than it is the you know state of California, um, and what happened was like you know city of ten thousand you know probably half of the houses had backyards full of cannabis being cultivated basically right out there in the open. So they once they recovered from the <laughs> uh, their budget recovered uh, in two thousand fourteen they reactivated code enforcement specifically to deal with their uh, you know so called problem the the backyard cannabis cultivation problem which certainly had some negative effects and had negative effects associated with it. Let's, let's, you know, let's say that, uh, the ripoffs are a pretty good example of, you know, something bad that can happen when cannabis is being grown entirely out in the open under conditions of prohibition. You have valuable crops. They're right there for the taking. And that stuff gets violent fast often. And that stuff gets violent fast, right? Exactly. So the, the landscape now is certainly, Yes, you know, camp is is out there. Um, camp is, is, and not just camp, but local uh, uh, joint task forces as well. Uh, and depending on where you are, they may be concentrating on large, environmentally impactful, you know, cultivation sites uh, that that are politically, you know, probably more agreeable to a lot of legacy cannabis farmers. Um, but they're also, you know, catching up, certainly, uh, and, and causing collateral damage for smaller farmers. Uh, so it's complex, but it was always complex, I guess, is the short <laughs> summary of this yeah. long answer, is that, yes, it's like camp, but camp isn't necessarily something that was the same. Like the 80s and 90s were really, it's, it's, it's gung-ho. Uh, you know, hit the small people, you know, uh, um, political, you know, thing. There's a, there's a sense in which camp kind of professionalized a little bit over time uh, and uh, and also justified its funding by getting plant counts so they weren't as incentivized to go after smaller growers. So, you know, whether it was a moral decision or not, it became, uh, you know, more profitable for them to go after uh, very large scale cultivation. Right on. So let me reintroduce you before we go to commercial. Uh, you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabis researcher Dr. Dominic Corva. We're going to take a short break and be right back. Cannabis folks are innovators and problem solvers, and we like to make money. Have you developed a tool, technique, or plant that you want to protect and monetize? You'll likely want legal representation that is experienced, accessible, and shares your values. Plant and Planet Law represents a wide variety of clients who choose to respect the environment while pursuing their business goals. 
Have you invented a machine or gizmo that you're bringing to market? Did you discover a breakthrough environmentally friendly pesticide or fertilizer formulation that you're about to start selling? Have you bred a cannabis plant with attributes not found anywhere else? Attorney Dale Hunt and his plant and planet team have established genetic patents in over 30 countries. Working to help entrepreneur scientists throughout the life sciences, Plant and Planet represents environmentally positive clients in cannabis and other botanicals, fungi, water purification, clean energy, emulsions, and medical applications. Plant and Planet helps people protect what they've created. If you are an early-stage company with an established idea and are in the process of fundraising, often the investors require intellectual property protections happen at the same time. Plant and Planet can be your sole representation, or they can integrate with your existing legal team and plug in their specialties. Plant and Planet is made of scientists, lawyers with a real passion for cannabis, inventions, and the environment. They have the scientific and legal depth to help you establish patent protections for your great idea. You don't have to go it alone. Friendly, qualified, and honorable legal representation is available to you. Contact Plant and Planet Law today to start the conversation. Email info at plantandplanet.com. That's Plant and Planet Law. Our clients make the planet better. After you've caught up on the latest Shaping Fire episodes, do you sometimes wish there was more cannabis education available to learn? Well, we got you. Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast. When I attend conventions to speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Zoe Sigmund's lecture, Understanding Your Endocannabinoid System, Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Frenchie Cannoli's Lost Art of the Hashishin presentation, Nicholas Mahmoud on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world, Eric Vlosky and Josh Rutherford on solventless extraction, and Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, too. While there, be sure to check out the three 10-part Shaping Fire Sessions series, one with Kevin Jodry, one with Dr. Ethan Russo, and one with Jeff Lowenfels. And even my own presentations on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business, even though the risks are so high. As of today, there's over 200 videos that you can check out for free. So go to youtube.com forward slash Shango Los or click on the link in the newsletter. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family owned and providing reliable, high yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband. And their award-winning blueberry muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. 
Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Land Race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. Humboldt Seed Company. Let them know Shango sent you. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is cannabis researcher, Dr. Dominic Corva. So, you know, chapter four of the book you edited with Josh Mizell begins with a provocative quote from Oregon State Representative Diane Russell, who said that the conversation about who makes the profits off this industry is irrelevant. Um, she said this as a way to try to focus activists on getting any legalization passed in the state of Maine, rather than nitpicking the particular were policy choices. But as we've all seen in California, Prop 64 was immediately a slippery piece of legislation that quickly became weaponized. And then with the removal of the one acre cap that was promised, the entire market t- you know, tilted towards large industrial producers distributing mediocre cannabis and driving prices down to a point where the heritage market has just been decimated. And we see this happening in one way or another in nearly every state that is normalized so far far. And as we see these multi-state operators weave their brands across the country state by state, the future looks very exasperating for smaller heritage players. What are your thoughts on who is making profits now and into the future versus how these laws were originally sold to the public? Well, I think the public didn't care, to be honest, mm-hmm. who it was that was supplying the cannabis uh, to a large degree. So, uh, certainly not the part of the public that needed to be convinced about legalization, necessarily. A, a lot of folks who just wanted easier access to cannabis. Um, and I think access, historically, has been culturally determined. You, It's your friend, you know, that is into cannabis and you know maybe comes from uh, a place where where it's around a lot uh, maybe it's your friend that's a grower um it's it has been difficult for some i remember a seattle journalist uh years ago uh happy that he could just go to a store because his dealer was so unreliable before um and so Let's just say that the people voting for legalization, or at least the the voting block that mattered, definitely were not the cannabis culture people. They're a very, very, very tiny percentage of the population. Um, And literally, they were going to vote for legalization, you know, wherever. So, first of all, I don't think that um, legalization was sold originally as an economic justice thing. That conversation has shifted tremendously in the last eight years um and primarily because of the black lives matter movement and the uh the way that that particular social movement has highlighted 
the, the, the whiteness and richness, essentially, of ownership in the cannabis industry. But let's talk about that. Let's talk about what that actually means. When you refer to multi-state operators, we're usually talking about um, operators who are getting their funding from being listed on the Canadian Stock Exchange, usually. Um, And so who's making money? Well, none of those MSOs are actually making money, or very, very few of them. What they're doing is losing money until their competitors can go out of business. That is uh, a tried and true, you know, uh, you know, uh, method in the United States that especially developed, you know, since you know Silicon Valley uh, and the tech sector, that all you had to do was scale up and 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 buy everybody, and it didn't matter if you lost money, you could always go back to the stock exchange and raise more money uh, until basically you could go in, in, into the green. And I don't know how many tech companies lost money, you know, or are even continuing to lose money today, uh, whose CEOs and founders are making, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars while they do this. So the companies aren't making money, but the CEOs and the founders and their officers are making money because they're being paid like corporate America, right? Like. Mm-hmm. What do you pay a CEO CEO in in the United States? Well, usually it's something absolutely ridiculous because that's what essentially, uh, you know, early 21st century financialized capitalism has done. It's created enormous inequality in terms of income uh, and and the people who are kind of sitting at the bottleneck just like, you know, uh, extracting, you know, uh, what would be an enormous amount of money to any other individual while their company loses money, uh, you know, those are the people getting rich, and they tend to be white and they tend to be male. That's absolutely the case. So, it, in in the cannabis industry, the media part of it really has fallen down about this because so many people want to talk about how much money is being made, how much revenue is being made in cannabis, and of course, like that's a stupid question. How much money is being made in cannabis? means nothing if you balance it with well how much is it costing us to actually make that money right because that's where you end up you know uh with net revenue losses even though you're you're raking in millions and millions of dollars that just means you've got a lot of sales but you had to spend money to get there and so ultimately it's these large mso's that you know can lose money but while small businesses can absolutely not do that right um they will go out of business. They will get uh, uh, acquired. And in fact, that's probably the strategy of a lot of folks who actually did transition to legalization at this point, is they've been barely getting by uh, or not at all, um, and they're positioning their businesses to get acquired so they can get out of this because they didn't sign up for basically a, you know... A business model that was absolutely no fun and had absolutely yeah. no you know reward to it, uh, and so really they you know most of them got into cannabis to get out of the rat race, right? And so legalization puts them right back in the rat race, and and nobody wants to be a rat racing around. So this is a you know this is a an interesting question across the landscape, but it's that that like popular assumption that anybody who starts a cannabis business must be loaded. That is a problem, and it's entirely because of all the IPO pumping that's been going on, 
Uh, you know, the, the media really is all about celebrating how much revenue comes in, and they have absolutely no, you know, on the other hand, <laughs> uh, these are the costs of doing business, and we don't get to, you know, deduct them, uh, you know, when we pay our taxes because cannabis is still illegal. So, uh, that's an issue in a couple of ways, and I'd say that's it gets real messy when you start talking about uh, a lot of these equity programs that are, you know, oriented towards diversifying ownership in the cannabis industry. Uh, because being an owner in the cannabis industry is not the reward for, uh, uh, you know, someone who is not a corporation that you would expect, right? Like, it's an invitation to go bankrupt. Um, and so, like, we both have this problem that, yes, too many white people are owners, uh, but especially too many white people are CEOs, right, of, of, of these large companies. And too many companies are, in fact, just these giant financial conglomerations that are, you know, just whales trying to swallow all the smaller whales until they're the biggest whale. So... That's a problem, and, and that problem is almost entirely produced by the you know levels of regulation that are required. That you can lose a bunch of money and just you know pay those costs of regulation and upkeep and unpredictability in the marketplace. Uh, if you have access to essentially a you know a revenue source that is you know a public stock exchange, you just sell more shares, uh, and so. The shareholders themselves also, you know, have essentially bought little pieces of something that they hope will eventually become big pieces, right? Uh, and so they themselves may eventually, uh, you know, cash out too. So uh, let's let's acknowledge that shareholders are also part of this landscape. What's the demographic of those those shareholders, right? Uh, well, there should be more research on that. Uh, I think that's it would be an important thing that. The, to uncover really is is how financialized is the cannabis industry, and what are the demographics of that financialization? Uh, so who really is making a bunch of money, uh, and and why? And when the answer is, well, they're making a bunch of money because they're doing exactly what capitalism in the United States and and elsewhere, you know, uh, incentivizes them to do. And then you're like, well, how do we change this? Think about that for a sec. Well, if the problem is actually existing capitalism, then maybe the issue is going to be you're going to need to do something about capitalism. Let me let me actually break that down so it's not as vague. By capitalism, let me refer to you know the financialized sector uh, uh, of our GDP. Uh, let us separate out the capitalism of small businesses and entrepreneurs. Uh, and, and livelihood operators, who are also, if you you know, depending on how you're defining capitalism, is for example, you know, using wage labor, right? Uh, you know, they're practicing capitalism, but they aren't practicing the kind of capitalism that operates through stock exchanges. Uh, and when you have these regulations, the regulations work just fine for you know, they're they're a small barrier for a financialized company relative to the kind of barrier they are for small businesses. So if you don't want to be like me uh, and, and you know, throw all of capitalism under under a bus, you know, it'd be good to kind of think about this in terms of, well, 
what do regulations do in terms of you know business competition uh, business competition and ownership uh, considerations uh, well in the rest of the United States what it does is it concentrates ownership in the hands of the few and and wrecks small businesses uh, makes it very difficult uh, high, you know heavy regulations are very difficult for small business owners to to uh, deal with uh, but they are not really much of a barrier for highly capitalized interests. So you have this kind of ambivalent thing going on here is we need big regulations for big business and small regulations for small business is, is probably the most sensible way to, to, uh, to think about that. Uh, but, you know, we really aren't set up in the society to, uh, to think that way. We, we're set up to think... Oh, there's either regulations or no regulations. Well, actually, if you want to democratize uh, the economy and uh, maybe do a little work on economic justice, what you would do is have big regulations for big business and small regulations for small business. Mm. There's one group in that demographic that I really would like to tease out. And, and you know, be patient with me because this, this, this question takes a moment to set up because you pointed out how um, the large cap... Uh, cannabis corporations are uh, financialized and they are they are they have a lot of revenue coming in but they're actually losing money but they're okay with that because their goal is like you said to be a bigger whale and buy out the smaller whales and then the much smaller people just run them out of business and, and to the point that prices are so low for cannabis that there's not enough of a premium market left for the smaller artisan craft producers um, that I herald on this show all the time, you know, the heritage growers who, who have been doing this for, for decades. So th there's going to be a, a certain point where, um, you know, this, this substantial number of growers are no longer able to see financial benefit in the license system. And so they're like, all right, fine, we're out. And, you know, as we already know, a lot of these, um, these, these craft companies have got, you know, two businesses going, right? They've got the licensed one that they're hoping to participate in, and, and they've got a second one that's that's still exporting and and helping pay the bills while the legal business gets up and running. But but if there's enough strength in corporate cannabis, they're never going to grow to that point, and eventually they'll just have to you know choose to give up their license and air quotes go do something else, right? But for the craft growers that I know who have been grown who have grown up in cannabis cannabis growing is all they know and and i wonder what that looks like from a you know sociological perspective which you offer about these people who grew up in illegal cannabis and and then took a shot in the licensed market and became publicly known and the public market was so broken and monopolized by financialized um cannabis companies that they have to go do something else and i suspect their first choice would be to go back to the the unlicensed market which has now grossly changed um both in california and in the markets that they used to and still do to a certain degree export to so so what do you think you know from from your perspective uh seeing the grand landscape what's going to happen to this part 
particular pool of heritage growers who eventually give up and say, I can't do this in the licensed market. What do you think or what have you seen these folks starting to do when the black market is so changed? Well, let's say, you know, let's acknowledge from the get-go that probably 95% of them never made a go of the licensed market. Right? Really? But, I didn't uh, I didn't realize it was such a large share of the unlicensed market that never even tried. That's that's an impressive oh, yeah. that's I an mean, impressive number. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm pulling that number a little out of my butt, but it's also a matter of uh you know, uh you know, you look at Humboldt that had that had, you know, an estimated to say 15,000, you know, cultivators, you know, on the on the on the eve of legalization, and they have uh, 800, you know, uh, uh, in 800 distinct, you know, owners uh, of cultivation or other kinds of licenses right now uh, that are going through the permitting and licensing process. Um, so that right there is 90%, right? Like yeah. uh, roughly. Uh, and and Humboldt, you know had a very high concentration also has a very very large amount of licenses per capita way more than anybody else so uh you know mendocino certainly uh similarly you're already actually seeing in mendocino and elsewhere the revenue reports for, of the last year of you know all these people that had permits and were operating but are not reporting revenue this year and don't appear to be operating so we're already going through an extinction event in that sense and and so there's kind of two things to think about here. One is, you know, returning to uh, the unregulated markets or participating in it as a way to try to stay in place and not become displaced from their communities, right? Um, finding something else to do in terms of uh, an occupation. Um there's also uh, displacement, you know, like uh, definitely a lot of people went to Oklahoma lately, right? Uh, so these are all, you know, different outcomes, you know, staying in place. And if your name is already in the system and your property is already in the system and you cease to be a licensed or a permitted operator, stop reporting revenues, you're, you stuck your neck out. And so the odds that you're going to be able to stay there and do the same thing are pretty low. Yeah. Uh, because... You know they're looking for you, and they're they're wondering what happened to you. Uh, so there's that aspect. Uh, I think that it's important important to realize that a lot a lot of operators, you know, there's many different kinds of heritage farmers. Is the is the thing I'm struggling with here, Shango, uh, and. Some of them have been, you know, at the cutting edge of indoor and, you know, breeding and staying on top of the latest cultivars and and, and regenerative agriculture and stuff like that. And, the, and then there's, you know, a lot of folks that, uh, you know, were not. They were, you know, they were growing and, and, and they had places to, to send it. Um so adapting, I think, to to new things, especially, you know, staying on top of what it is you can export, because it's not just anything anymore. 
you know, I, I think that adapting in terms of uh, what it is you're growing and how you're growing it are two big things. Uh, and certainly reducing your inputs and staying, you know, low impact. And, and I mean that, you know, uh, environmentally as well as socially, right? Uh, staying under the radar. Uh, you know, these are all adaptive strategies that people are using. Uh, I want to say that also within the licensed market, the problem isn't just the MSOs overproducing. The problem is that California cannot open enough retail. That, like, you know, again, two-thirds of its jurisdictions, you know, don't have retail. And so what that means is that there's more and more product going to, you know, the amount of stores that is staying completely, you know, the same. And that drives down the cost of, uh, or the price of wholesale cannabis, uh, and eventually a little bit drives down the price of the consumer. But then what's also happening is, you know, distributors, uh, distribution licenses that are operated as burners. So then you have these entrepreneurs who basically acquire uh, distribution licenses, buy up tons of product, and then report it all lost or stolen, basically, right? Uh, and so it's like, yeah, your price on the uh, uh, your wholesale price that you can buy on the legal side is like down to very very little here, four, five hundred, three hundred, uh, and then you can turn around and export that somewhere else for three times as much, you know, per per pound. You know, that's when I think we talked about this before. That's when basically the legal market becomes. The diversion the market. market, yeah, right? the diversion market, uh, and so uh, that kind of interplay between the unregulated and regulated, uh, you know, diversion and not diversion dynamic is homeostatic in a certain way, because now the unregulated market gets flooded and drives the price down. Uh, <laughs> so anybody going to the unregulated market and hoping that's what saves them is going to get chased by this flood of you know. Uh, diversion coming from diversion the license market from the, yeah. the license market so there's a dynamic that's not just like what's happening this year it's like what's happening next year uh and so uh this is all very difficult right uh what i what i will say though is that obviously you know there's there's no logical reason why farmers shouldn't have direct to con- to market access like why did they have to go through distributors and retailers why can't they sell directly to consumers, right? Um, and so, you know, if they if they got that that right, as any other farmer or agriculture, you know, uh, agricultural sector has, you know, you could sell your apples, you know, on a farm stand. That's not <laughs> nobody. Uh, you, you don't get arrested for that, you know. Like uh, then, that would help, right? Mm-hmm. I think that. Uh, the other part is like if you are producing the absolute top of the line craft stuff, right? Then your market share isn't falling because basically those, you know, corporate cannabis at large scale can't produce quality that is high enough to attract the sophisticated consumer, right? Like the sophisticated consumer is barely even patronizing the legal market. Right. Anyway, right? Uh but the fact is, you know, like, I remember in 1993, 94, you know, 
my stoner buddies, uh, you know, come into a party and they're like, we got the kind bud, you know, like, and I was like, how much did you pay for that? And they're like, $400 an ounce. And I was like, oh my God, because like what we were buying was like, you know, $100 ounces of Mexican seeded stuff. And, right. you know, I, I didn't have any, I didn't know, you know, why a poor college student would choose to like, you know, purchase a much more expensive product, you know, until you consume it and you, you see the difference. Uh, and, and, you're, so, and, and you're ruined forever from Mexican brickweed. And, <laughs> and exactly, exactly. And and the fact is, is that like, you know, over the course of the 1990s and 2000s, like people literally chose to spend four times more, you know, uh, on the on the, on the consumer end because they had the, they could have bought the Mexican, but our entire you know domestic market shifted uh, towards the more expensive stuff because it was that much better. And so, like again, there there is like craft, actual craft, you know, uh, production. Which not every heritage grower has the ability necessarily to do, uh, you know, it will have shelf space uh, at prices that are, you know, much more agreeable to the grower. So you have to actually hone your craft um, uh, in addition to, you know, embracing, you know, new marketing possibilities like appellations and, you know, equity branded uh, 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 supply chains and local branded supply chains. There are many other marketing tricks that you can do to kind of stay in the market. But the fact is, if you can't pay your rent, you're, you're not going to be, you're not going to go forward with this. And so, those are those are kind of the options available: is to you know embrace all of the things that you can do to add value to your product, and 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 you know usually that means smaller scale cultivation because that's how you get really high quality products not mass produced um and as long as you can do that you know if you're a heritage farmer you know that's rural on your land you know like that was the point you're you're doing this to stay on your land uh and you can grow you know organic food and vegetables as well and 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 mix it up right uh heritage farmers that are you know historically maybe more urban or indoor focused well is it gonna is it paying the rent or is it not you know like that's the question you know and if it's not and if you don't have access to market then uh you're going to be displaced basically or 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 you're gonna you know you're gonna get a different job and let's say that you know a lot of those those folks a lot of those folks actually developed trade skills that are pretty vital to like indoor production that are not bad options, you know, uh, going back in, going back into real estate, going into, you know, HVAC or, or, you know, electric or whatever else, you know, those are options basically. So, uh, like a lot of the rest of the gig economy, it's kind of cobbling stuff together to, to move forward. So, I think there's always been a difference, though, between the folks who were doing it to, like, stay out of the rat race and the people who were doing it to basically cheat in the rat, rat race, right? Yeah, I follow this. Uh, you follow that? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I got no moral you know, judgment, actually, about the latter, let's just say, as well. Uh, not, not necessarily. It's like, screw the rat race. 
you know <laughs> Any, anybody who's trying to get around it is i totally understand it uh but you know like uh i think that's the right to not be displaced from one's community and land is a really important principle and and that's the one that i think we should be we we may be able to do something about um certainly the state of california is increasingly uh maybe it's too little too late but you know the equity program monies are arriving there's another million dollars that uh, uh humboldt county has taken out of their general fund to help their farmers this was just announced like a a week ago uh you know jurisdictions who are collecting a, you know a bunch of taxes that aren't supporting their local businesses are going to lose those taxes so they're going to start you know saying okay well maybe you know maybe we'll you know beef up our equity programs to try to keep people uh but but the ones that do that are usually the ones that recognize people that are part of their communities their mothers fathers sisters brothers and daughters and you know they're they're not trying to make a move to oklahoma you know yeah <laughs> so so for the rest of the set let's uh let's take a let's pivot and move from more the governance um and, and cultural disciplines into uh public health yeah. and um you know uh Nearly everyone knows somebody who's being helped by medical cannabis at this point, even in states that don't have any sort of medical or, you know, rec cannabis. They still have their sister who lives in California or their uncle who lives in Oklahoma. And and these people are saying, oh, my gosh, I'm using this and my arthritis is so much better. So so people are aware of medical cannabis use now, and it is very quickly terrible down the the taboos and and moral panic that as you refer to it in the book and um and it has now shown this interesting contrast between public health and public policy because public policy on especially the local level because of the patchwork regulations we've talked about local level public policy can be anti-cannabis and be decreasing access or or for example not having pesticide uh, uh, tests because the businesses are resisting it versus the public health drive for cannabis because people are finding unique ways to get relief from cannabis that doesn't have some of the same side effects as some of their other options so um, what are you seeing um, you know from from your 10,000 foot view of, of this, this contrast, this friction that we're getting now between public health and, and um, kind of antiquated uh, policy. Well, I think that uh, as usual, I'm going to point towards complexity uh, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because I think that often, you know, public health institutions are actually, you know, uh, feeding back on, you know, prohibitionist stigma uh and you know doing everything they can to actually you know uh keep prohibition and legalization entangled right uh and so uh you know an, an example of that would be the ways in which you know really strict zoning in terms of like setbacks in particular from parks and schools and so forth that are way more harsh than alcohol uh you know are supported by you know usually public health you know professionals 
uh, who are all very, very, very worried about the kids. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's it's usually the white kids ultimately that they're worried about. Um, so, so let's just say that those they're not necessarily you know opposing each other necessarily. There are you know, in terms of health research, more broadly speaking, um, I think that it is pretty important for you know uh, bioscientific research to do its thing and uh this is where i want to give a plug to the person you last had on miyabi uh dr miyabi shields dr miyabi shields man like that's pretty much like both those interviews i I would just say (laughs) you know are an answer to that that your question you know like uh uh you know this is someone who is talking about the science of it as something that can be complementary to the herbal medicine and traditional medicine approaches and not just uh you know uh another hierarchical situation where the the pursuit for molecular you know uh double blind controlled studies you know uh runs herbal medicine out of town right the burns the witches at the stake uh, which is, I think, a, a situation that is a, a problem for public health, uh, but can be complementary and synergistic with it. Um, I also think that uh, she had some really sophisticated answers uh, when talking about the, you know, the the cultural value of trusting, you know, the experts in terms of, you know, uh, bioscience and, and and this humility with respect to like what we actually know. Uh, which is, you know, not much yet. You know, I think she, they, sorry, my apologies for the um, misgendering. Um, they pointed towards, you know, really being at the very beginning of discovery about, you know, the endocannabinoid system and so forth, which is often not the attitude of researchers getting big grants because they can't say that in their grant applications. Otherwise, they're not going to get that grant. Mm-hmm. So there's there's this culture i think uh that is attached entirely to funding that uh you know promotes this hierarchical dismissive uh approach to health that is you know only worried about danger and is not humble about what it actually knows as opposed to a you know health research agenda driven by uh you know bioscientists like miyabi who are listening to you know what what patients are saying about their own bodies and respecting that, right? Um, that's what I mean by a, a more non-hierarchical approach that uh, expertise is developed, you know, with patients, not in spite of them. So um, I would say that the, in addition to um, this non-hierarchical approach, um, this this contrast that that I recognize that you're saying is very complex. Um, it's it's also complex in other ways, right? For example, the the limitations on on 
on scientific research still that even though we know there's a great need for more research into the medicine, well, it's still really hard to get them approved using these controlled substances or or another, as we've seen um, play out recently in the, the Olympics, you know, the regulation mm. in sports making criminals out of athletes who are just trying to recover. There seems to be... Uh, culture-wide friction between the public health benefits of cannabis and the the kind of hangover of moral panic that drove mm-hmm. prohibition for the last you know 50 years yeah absolutely absolutely so the you know health research has has been a part of the moral panic historically it's been maybe uh, the main driver of it uh, because NIDA, you know, again, was funding research for you know, 40 years on how harmful cannabis could be. Um, and so I think that that's, that's important. I think that, that you know, the, the Olympics example is a really interesting one, as is the, the general field of exercise and sport that Dr. Whitney Ogle talks about in her chapter in Public Health. That's... You know, when when Whitney went back to do essentially a, a literature review, what she found was in the 1960s and 1970s there were actually all these the the beginnings of a, a body of of research that was about the potential public health or health benefits of of cannabis in exercise and sport, and it completely vanished. So much so that like when you're starting a paper now and you're reviewing the literature like you're, you're there's not much from the last 10 years but there's a whole lot from the 60s and 70s and so it's like a thread to, to pick up uh to pick up really that got just completely obliterated and dropped um and in exercise and sport obviously when it comes to the olympics i think that what the the scandal about you know shikari richardson being disqualified from the Olympics had more to do with like a public, like what, you know, like, <laughs> like, uh, uh people being really? flabbergasted, you know, people being flabbergasted than any sort of like, Oh, this is like a new thing. Cause we you know, Ross, uh, Robaglio, the Olympic, uh, uh, um, snowboarder, uh, you know, 15 years ago was, uh, lost his medal. Right. But, but nobody said, okay, let's change the rules. Therefore, like now, like this literally is okay. Wait a sec. Like, this is a really weird thing that we have disqualified a world-class athlete for using cannabis because we have listed it as a performance-enhancing drug because that's how you ban things from our, you know, from athletes. Uh, it's like ba- it's actually, like backing into the regulation. It's completely, completely, and I, I do think that that things will change. Although, here's the question for you, Shango: Like, is cannabis a performance-enhancing drug? Can it be? Uh, uh, I, I think that's the kind of a next level question that you know I I would argue not to the level where it, you know should be banned like steroids or something like that, right? But it is anti-inflammatory. It might help you recover faster. Uh, you know, world class athletes that use cannabis, including like NBA players, you know, like like at least half of them apparently, uh, you know. Is that giving him an edge? Uh, and that's a research question, right? 
but you don't start from the point of it's already banned and then then ask that research question. You you say this doesn't make sense on the surface and it wasn't in here for any particular research reason. There's no research that said this is performance enhancing drug, therefore let's ban it. Uh, the the re- the research was like, is it illegal? Therefore, let's ban it, right? Uh, but like, that's you know, I think a, a very interesting research agenda, which is is Whitney's as well. It's like, well, how can cannabis be integrated into you know, uh, exercise and, and sport in a healthy way? And I think that's a legitimate question. But it's you know, I think there there there's a uh, you know, there's a research agenda there about whether cannabis can be performance enhancing that shouldn't be connected to an already existing rule that like you know bans people but if we're going to argue that yeah cannabis can be used you know when you're exercising then you you have to embrace that as a legitimate research question right on well let's go ahead and take our second short break and be right back you are listening to shaping fire and my guest today is cannabis researcher dr dominic corva There is no doubt that autoflowering cannabis plants have finally come into their own. And Night Owl Seeds works tirelessly, bringing you autoflower genetics that are reliable, thriving, and with extraordinary terpene profiles. Night Owl Seeds is an industry leader because of the focus work of their founder, Daz. Daz is passionate about the cannabis plant and pushing what autoflowers can do, and cultivators know that these efforts show through in his seeds. And Night Owl Seeds really are extraordinary. Just take a look at the thousands of photos by fans on Instagram. The proof is there and obvious. Terpenes are complex and rich. Plants have vigor. If you are a fan of Mephisto genetics like I am, you'll likely also love Night Owl Seeds. Night Owl founder Daz worked with Mitch Mephisto to build the Mephisto brand for years, including breeding Mephisto's much-loved Sour Stomper and Cosmic Queen cultivars. I'm growing both Night Owl and Mephisto this year because I want the best. And Night Owl Seeds knows how to cultivate community, too. Daz puts out great stickers, exclusive packaging for limited runs, and desirable freebies. He really draws you in if you love creative branding. Night Owl even has the Secret Owl Society Text Club. Just text the word Night Owl, one word, to 760-670-3130 for early announcements and exclusive opportunities. Of course, you can see lots of photos and find out about upcoming drops by following the Night Owl Seeds Instagram, too, at daz.nightowl. That's D-A-Z dot Night Owl. You can get your packs of Night Owl Seeds at several distributors, including DC Seed Exchange, Insane Seeds, and Hembra Genetics. That's Night Owl Seeds. There's a difference because we're different. Sometimes the topics I want to share with you are far too brief for an entire Shaping Fire episode. In those instances, I post them to Instagram. I invite you to follow my two Instagram profiles and participate online. The Shaping Fire Instagram has follow-up posts to Shaping Fire episodes, growing and processing best practices, product trials, and, of course, gorgeous flower photos. The Shango Los Instagram follows my travels on cannabis garden tours, my successes and failures in my own garden, insights and best practices from personal grows everywhere, and always gorgeous flower photos. On both profiles, the emphasis is on sharing what I've learned in a way that you can replicate it in your own garden, your own hash lab, or for your own cannabinopathic health. So I encourage you to follow at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los and join our online community on Instagram. 
As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You've got so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into your marketing as deeply as you'd like. You know there's more that you could do to reach out to new customers and encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time for it, and you're not ready to hire somebody full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. At Blunt Branding, Kirsten Nelson and her team are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility, but that's pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and her team will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, whether it be online or a storefront, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. Now, if you happen to be a new cannabis company or an established company moving from medical to adult use in your state, Kirsten especially can help you. Not only is she well-versed in marketing and finance, but she totally gets cannabis, whole plant medicine, terpenes, heritage farmers, and the particular needs of startups. Check out what she did recently for Moontime Medicinals and Humboldt at MoontimeMedicinals.com. Kirsten and her team put together a whole brand package for them, built their website, and wrote their sales materials. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on five projects now for various of their clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making a pretty logo. Similarly, every single friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me. And that just does not happen every day. Grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming up. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology solutions in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our newsletter. Blunt Branding, marketing that makes you money. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Los, and my guest today is cannabis researcher, Dr. Dominic Corva. So, Dominic, um, I've got another point I want to bring up about public uh, public health. And um, throughout the book, prisons come up again and again as an enforcement tool that is applied unevenly, both by, uh, well, I guess it's more by, by locale, by race, and who the judge may be. Sometimes it's just the roll of the dice. The, the number of Americans who remain in prison, you know, props up a for, you know, for-profit prison system that is, of course, severely broken. And, and now we see the strange inequity of prisoners continuing to be held while white-collar entrepreneurs receive licenses to sell the same stuff. Not only does that strike most folks as wildly unfair, uh, prison for nonviolent cannabis offenses continues to break up families and have extensive impacts on public health. So would you continue with an explanation of what you see happening now along the prison public health axis during this, you know, difficult and rocky transition between um, prohibition and prohibition alongside licensed and taxed cannabis? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot to say about that. And, and the first thing that I want to point out is that For example, in in Colorado, legalization came with new criminal penalties uh, for people under the age of 21, uh, and that this is often a knee-jerk 
part of legalization is to actually increase penalties, criminal penalties, uh, for uh, you know folks under the age of 21, which is you know absolutely counterproductive. Um, and so you know that has to do with kind of like deciding an age at which cannabis is legal, which is also part of the entanglement of legalization and prohibition. Because, like, as far as I know, we will never be done with prohibition, you know, uh, criminal prohibition sanctions against people under the age of 21. So, um, perhaps these may get reduced to, like, civil ones, but uh, as long as we have basically decided that uh, a legal consumer is only someone over the age of 21 or someone with a, a medical uh, you know, uh, authorization that's under under 21, then we're we're going to have uh, you know a, a criminal justice system that tilts against the younger people in cannabis. Um, also, as we pointed out before, demographically, the legal licenses are going to you know whiter, wealthier people, and they sometimes have an incentive to call for more enforcement, and that enforcement happens against black and brown people uh disproportionately um this is especially true in urban areas so the phenomenon we call mass incarceration is a combination of federal and and local you know prison systems basically right uh that sometimes have something to do with each other and sometimes not uh in large urban cities like Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, in the 1990s and 2000s, what those cities chose to do um, in terms of policing and public safety was to do broken windows policing, what they called broken windows policing, which meant that basically the police had kind of a free hand to... Um, uh, identify, you know, the metaphoric broken windows, uh, signs of disorder in any given community, and, you know, come up with ways to, uh, you know, uh, bring them into the criminal justice system. And, of course, uh, you know, usually a, a broken window in a white community is a black person, right? There's a sign of disorder. So, uh, in in urban areas in particular, that kind of policy combined with that kind of discretion really intensified the, you know, uh, bringing black and brown people, you know, uh, into the criminal justice system. Um, this was also true in rural areas, but the the disproportionality is very, very different. That that black and brown people in rural areas definitely are disproportionately, you know, when you look at the numbers, uh, arrested uh, for, for, for cannabis and other drug crimes. But there is, it, is, it is drastically lower than in urban areas. At the same time, their like, arrest rates are often higher than urban areas per capita, which means that they are arresting a lot more white people as well. And women, actually. <laughs> rural areas often have higher than state average um, uh, arrests of women. Uh, and this is in particular, let me say, to, because the data that I'm, that I'm thinking about is from California. So let's, let's make sure that I'm not trying to generalize. I think that that's a research agenda for everywhere else as well, by the way. Mm -hmm. But we know this uh, uh, of California, and especially 
uh, legacy-producing regions, which are the ones that I've been able to study the data for. Um, so, the other part of it is that a lot has been done in the last 10 to 20 years to actually reduce um, jail populations, local, local jail populations in big cities. That there's been basically reforms going on since the early 2000s that are, you know, bail reform or other things um, that are helping a lot with that. But folks in federal prison, it's, it's, a, it's a population that's much more stable and much more long-term. Uh, and part of this has to do with the power of prosecutors, especially federal prosecutors, uh, that basically increase substantially relative to defense or judges, actually, since in, given the, the Criminal Justice Acts of you know, 1986, 1988, 1994, uh, that basically created these draconian mandatory minimums, truth and sentencing, and all this tough-on-crime legislation that basically means that whatever, whatever it is you did, when you did it, is actually pretty important, because if you did it in 1988... You you got like you know forty years to life or something for something that you know uh, <laughs> yeah. today would not get you forty years to life, and this is true for every offense, not just cannabis. Cannabis is part of, of course, at the federal level, which means you know we're talking about the federal prison system. Uh, part of prohibition that means not just that cannabis is prohibited, but like all these other drugs are also prohibited, and so cannabis is part of. You know, this range of delinquencies, essentially, that the state has decided is worth, like, you know, all this effort, time, and money to imprison people for and lock them up for. And so, cannabis is kind of along for the ride with the other drugs. Whenever there's a moral panic about crack, cannabis also gets caught up in it. If it's about fentanyl, cannabis is going to get caught up in it, at least federally, right? It's, you know... To prosecutors, it's 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 a drug crime. You know, it's it's a felony. It's not a cannabis felony. It's not a you know uh, some other kind of felony. So it's important, and this is actually the other part that that I think in the introduction we really lay out is like don't forget that cannabis prohibition prohibition is absolutely part of drug prohibition, and that's an entanglement that is absolutely meta because. Uh, <laughs> drug prohibition, you know, takes cannabis along for the ride. Um, so, with respect to you know who gets prison and not, and, and in terms of you know wealthy white people having licenses to sell things, people are going to prison for. I would just point out that like, even if those wealthy white people were getting arrested, they would either not be spending any time in prison. Or they would be spending basically their time in prison club med, like like wow. Martha Stewart, right? Yeah, like that's our criminal justice system. It is absolutely unequal in this country, just like our economy is. Uh, uh, the privileges you have when you have a lot of capital have nothing to do with whether that's cannabis capital or whether it's oil capital or whether it's pharma capital. It's privilege, uh, and so it's very important, I think, not to. Not to be like militantly particular about cannabis as an issue and, 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 and the prison system. Actually, like our prison system itself is just awful. Prosecutorial discretion has driven mass incarceration. 
Uh, no amount of you know legalizing discrete supply chains of cannabis are going to have a large impact on what's going on there. And like, you know, sure, it's very important to advocate for people to get out of prison. But I, I think that like a lot of people are really kind of myopically focused just on cannabis criminals and cannabis crimes. And actually, it's all the other ones too. Uh, there are a lot of people who just are poorer and are you know people of color that are caught up and trapped in this prison system, whether or not it's about cannabis. So uh, this is one of those things that I think, in terms of the promises and 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 goals of legalization, has shifted. Like back in 2010, there was a lot of talk about you know ending mass incarceration because you're legalizing cannabis, which is always a great exaggeration. Uh, and I think in 2020, what you have is actually more of a, like, let's put our money where our mouth is at this point. Um, because back then it was just kind of a marketing ploy. Uh, and in many ways, it did a great disservice to black and brown people by legalizing cannabis and then absolutely having no no part of the legal cannabis system oriented towards, you know, actually helping black and brown people. We used them. We used them in in, in Washington. We absolutely used them as, like let's legalize cannabis because it's bad for minorities, but then legalization comes along and actually doesn't do anything good for, for people of color. Uh, and, and I think that's changed uh, significantly in the last 10 years. I think that the, the ACLU, who was probably the worst offender, uh, is much more in tune now to uh, the, the realities of the situation. It's no longer treating this like an advertisement for, for legalization. Right on. Well, thank you for that perspective, Dominic. You're you're always you're always remixing my perspective, and I appreciate that. Um, I've got two more questions left for our conversation, and uh, each of them uh, hits on different different areas in the book. Um, I see that Professor Evan Mills is back with an update of his groundbreaking research into electrical usage by indoor cultivators. Um, his his original paper kind of blew everybody away back. I don't know what was it, twenty thirteen or so, twenty twelve, yeah. yeah, and it just floored everybody. Um, the numbers he was quoting that was the electricity that was being used by indoor cultivation and um for a while there anyway um it looked like it was going to influence um uh regulations and encourage uh, uh preferred regulatory environment for outdoor and you know that mostly went away as um as indoor interests um lobbied back um but uh the the the, the press version of 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 your new book that i got did not have the, the 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 chapter from professor mills in it and and i think that uh i'm i and probably a lot of other people who are familiar mm-hmm. with that work uh his early work are, are curious to know what he has to say now so so since i haven't read the chapter i don't know how to direct you on this question but it's other yeah. than to say what what does evan mills say now oh well you know evan has a lot to say about how this is playing out in the regulated landscape uh so he's not just engaging with like you know arcata california and the, the electricity usage in, in houses he's he's talking about a much bigger carbon footprint when you're talking about warehouses um and so uh, what he really especially engages really very well with is how regulations that are supposed to be about, you know, uh, protecting the environment, you know, because we're, we're real worried about, as we should be, you know, water, uh, land use, you know, um, 
uh, impacts to wildlife, absolutely. Like those are important things. And so we've we've got all these regulations. Actually, like the ones that are probably the most difficult for you know uh, heritage farmers are, are these CEQA regulations. But at the same time, we're basically incentivizing carbon footprint intensive cultivation uh, because we're making it so difficult to grow it outdoors and on ag land necessarily, along with other crops. Um, so the perspective really is a, is a, is a bigger and broader structural perspective, really. Um, he reviews information from like Cal California and Colorado in particular. Um, and what's interesting is obviously his paper had a big impact back then and Arcata, you know, raised its electricity tax rates and everybody moved to McKinleyville mm. and just kept, kept going. Uh, so, <laughs> so the the issue though is that like what Evan wants to talk about now isn't unregulated cannabis impacts uh, necessarily at all. Like uh, certainly he's concerned about that and very you know not in favor of indoor cannabis you know cultivation because of its carbon footprint. But the really big you know uh, problems now are in the regulated system, and so this is a critique of legalization, not just a critique of unregulated cannabis. And that in itself is is you know profoundly important. And let's see whether it gets the kind of attention that his previous research did, because his previous research may have been a little more convenient for people you know uh, that wanted to you know say perfectly reasonable things about you know the carbon footprint issues of of indoor cultivation, but also uh, you know it played along played 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 into you know. Um, Folks wanting to essentially, you know, prohibit or, 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 or reduce the amount of cannabis cultivation going on in this case now, because that is very inconvenient. Uh, once again, it's an inconvenient truth, mm. but it's inconvenient to the regulators. And, and, and Evan is uh, in fine form, uh, you know, uh, addressing political and regulatory interests and, and, and corporate interests that uh you know are are making this carbon footprint issue you know uh uh or metastasizing it just growing it massively um of course with 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 the climate change conversation being that much more important now than it was 10 years ago um we hope that uh this is a an, an intervention that is you know spread as widely and as fast uh, as quickly as as his, his prior one Right on. Well, I'm looking forward to re uh, reading it, and I am glad that uh, that Evan Mills is is still in the mix and still looking into this topic. Let's let's finish off our discussion with uh, the chapter by our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Michelle Sexton. Um, this chapter too, I'm excited to read still because it wasn't in the press edition, but because uh, Dr. Sexton and I have been discussing for years the nexus of institutional science and the good work done by citizen science scientists and and it's fun because you know like most of the topics that you cover here it's a complex one and and she and i have both um evolved our ideas you know over our what 10 years as friends and 
and and debating this topic. And as a citizen scientist myself, I know that often my sample sizes are low and my controls perhaps not the most complete, but citizen scientists everywhere are also working faster than institutions in many ways and blazing new paths that institutional researchers can, you know, follow up on later. Plus I'm hearing things from patients who talk to me that are often, you know, not insights that are are being heard um, by traditional you know, clinical doctors. So what are the main uh, arguments in this chapter on the intersection of cannabis citizen science and, and institutional or or academic uh, scientists? Well, Shango, that's a very good question. Uh, And I also want to just say that, uh, you know, Dr. Sexton is an absolutely dear friend of mine and, and and helped me co-found CASP as, as did Sunil Agarwal. Uh, both co- contributors to this handbook, so it was especially great to to have them both in here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and so, really, I think what it comes down to, it's you know, Michelle is very, very concerned to address the entanglement of commercialization and 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 citizen science, uh, and citizen science, you know is one thing when it's listening to patients and responding to them, right? And it's another thing when it's manufacturing claims in the service of selling, you know, uh, as much, you know, CBD as, you, you know, distillate as you can. Oh. And so, like, these are kind of the, the divergent situations. Like, one is kind of the traditional herbal medicine citizen science that... Uh, I think, uh, you know, 10 years ago or eight years ago when you, when you might have met her, she was at the forefront of, certainly, uh, First Analytics Lab in, in Washington State, um, a naturopathic doctor, uh, and then kind of this explosion of all these claims that get made that are have a lot of issues, but the primary one is that they're incentivized by essentially the supply chain and, and marketing especially around CBD. Um, and so these, this can be problematic for several reasons. One is just like taking an anecdote and like, you know, uh, turning it into a law of nature, right? Uh, and saying that this will always help everyone just buy this CBD, you know, that you could get at your gas station, right? Uh, um, and the Delta 8 and the, everything else that's now going to gas stations. Um so there are those claims made that are bastardizations of citizen science. Uh and I think I'm doing uh um I think I'm doing her chapter service by 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 clarifying this that there are those claims that that they come out of a tradition of, you know, healing and patient-centric, you know, uh clinical observational research in particular uh that was not possible under conditions of prohibition just prohibition, not just prohibition with uh, legalization, right? Um, And then there is essentially the, you know, commercial incentive to take those claims and completely divorce them from the intimate social relationships that characterize, you know, uh, traditional herbal medicine, right? And so this is, I think, absolutely... A fantastic intervention that could have gone in the public health section, 
but we chose to put it into the culture and social change section because it's 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 about to me this this cultural difference between like the commercialization cult, you know, basically cultures of commercialization and cultures of of care patient centric care right so citizen science is both something that has helped and also something that others have bastardized basically to make a a bunch of money off of and so that to me makes it an incredibly important chapter uh, because what happens is a backlash and I think you're seeing it a lot actually and you will see more of it and the backlash is from you know policymakers and, and, and health researchers who instantly see through essentially the, the, the commercialization of these claims but they don't really also understand that, that, that the citizen science actually has been doing a lot of important work on the ground so they discount really the traditional herbal medicine thing and, and, and hitch their wagons to like the pharmaceuticalIzation of of of, of uh, cannabis entirely, right? Yeah, it, fe- so it feels they, safer like, to them. Yeah, yeah, it feels safer. They're like herbal medicine, like that's a joke, you know. Like, uh, look at these CBD companies, uh, you know. Uh, and so, like, you know, Michelle shares their distastes, but doesn't have that distaste for actual, like, you know, herbal medicine. She's she's a naturopathic doctor, and so, like, in many ways, it's to preserve the integrity of actually, you know, the entire you know, tradition of herbal medicine, herbal traditional medicine, which is finally be- becoming recognized in the United States in the last 30 years as something that's actually valid, but still is kind of seen as, you know, um, not scientific, right? Because it's, it's, not, uh, it's not working with molecules and standardizations uh, as opposed to herbal medicine, which can work with, like, the whole plant and actually address differences in people's you know body chemistry uh that actually standardizing medicine is a terrible idea uh from a certain perspective because everybody's bodies are different right uh and so uh it's a really really crucial intervention um and 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 i hope to see more of it but it's really kind of this like we don't want cannabis to become snake oil Right, like like when it comes down to it, and snake oil is all about marketing over, you know, safety. Um, but safety is not defined by pharmaceutical procedures. Like uh, that is something that is part of the the herbal tradition as well. So, uh, I, if Dr. Sexton is listening to this, I hope I've I've done her chapter. <laughs> Uh, you know the, the kind of service it deserves. It's a crucial intervention. Well, it's also great. It was I was very happy to see Dr. Michelle Sexton's chapter in the book uh, uh, for for uh, for a host of reasons. But but one I like is that she's always been a friend to the patient first. You know, she has been involved. You know, advising different uh, companies in cannabis and and of course she's been working with cannabis as an herbalist for uh for a very long time and even myself you know with 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 michelle and i being allies and and 
having very similar agendas, she would often catch me and say, well, you know, Shango, you're kind of overstating what we know about cannabis based on mm-hmm. your anecdotal, you know, uh, yeah. conversations with, um, with patients. And, and sometimes that would frustrate me, but then, then I had to come back to, to what's real and realize that, you know, um, you know, relying too much on hype is where we get into these problems. Yep. And, um, you know, if, if Dr. Michelle Sexton is anything, she is anti-hype. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I am grateful for the chapter and her participation as well. Yeah. So, Dominic, thank you so much for your time. Um, uh, again, congratulations on uh, the release of, of this uh, collection you edited with uh, Joshua Mizell, the Routledge Handbook of Post-Prohibition Cannabis Research. Um, uh, where can folks get the book? So, first of all, let me actually, because I haven't yet in this interview, I want to s- express my profound gratitude towards my partner in this project, uh, Josh Mizell at Humboldt State University, sociologist. Uh, he wa- he's been just a, a, we've been a dream team together, and we're, we're doing a lot of other things <laughs> together, too. Uh, and so, I just am so grateful for his friendship and, and collaboration, uh, and he deserves a lot of credit uh, as well. And so I want to make sure that I don't, don't leave him out. But uh, So f- the other thing is, of course, is that you can buy the handbook on Amazon. You can buy it on Routledge.com. Routledge is a global academic publisher. This is the hardback version right now. There's going to be uh, a soft cover that's going to be much less expensive. The book is you know, uh, part of the, the Routledge handbook series, which is sold to universities around the globe, basically. And so that's a price that's is essentially reflecting the the you know business model of Routledge, which is that universities are you know institutions and they're going to pay more for books, uh, and, and so and then there's also obviously an electronic document, um, which is also often very good for universities to to get because then they can their students can use it. Uh, this is the kind of handbook that is going to have a much wider appeal though and a bigger audience, and so uh, I recognize that and I want to make sure that. Folks don't feel like they're you know economically squeezed out because of the the you know at at twenty five percent off two hundred dollar uh, price of the hardcover. There will be a soft cover. It will be out you know in a few months, and uh, you know uh, strongly encourage folks who are not you know particularly wealthy you know not to go out of their way uh, and get the expensive one, but the the cheaper one will be available. Right on. Well, Dominic, thank you so much. Uh, both, both. I appreciate your friendship and our very long time working together. Uh, every time uh, you join us here on Shaping Fire or on my prior uh, podcast, um, you always bring the truth, and uh, and I really appreciate that you don't let yourself get, um, you know, cut up in the cut up in all the excitement and the hoo ha. And you're always telling me, "Well, Shango, it's not as simple as that. We need <laughs> we need to look at this in a more complex way." So, so I, I very much appreciate you. And, and, and thank you for joining us on Shaping Fire today. Thank you, Shango. I am absolutely proud of, uh, of uh, your program and listen to it regularly. And just uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor knowing you. And right. uh, look forward to a long and wonderful friendship.
Right on. Thank you, brother. So if you want to find out more about uh, Dominic Corva and his work, you can go to CannabisAndSocialPolicy.org, which is the website for his nonprofit research group. Um, also, uh, I can refer you all the way back. I didn't even have to write this in my notes. Episode one of, of Shaping Fire, all about um, uh, cannabis policy transfer uh, from state to state, essentially um, how it works that uh, state policies in one state uh, get transferred to another state uh, for better or for worse. And, uh, and of course, the book, um, uh, whether or not you want to get the hardcover now or whether or not you want to wait and get the, the softcover electronic versions, um, there will be a link to that on Amazon um, on the page for this episode on shapingfire.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.